you are at the net. And welcome, friends, to another episode of the At the Net podcast, powered by Texmex Productions. Working the soundboards in the back of the house are our producers, D Mac and Dave the Brain. Time to say hello to your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, as they're about to take us through three sets of tennis, talking life and all the news as it seems to them. Gentlemen, Craig Bell. Thanks to our Ethernet podcast group for that fabulous introduction. And welcome, fans, to the great game. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 41 of Ethernet Podcast with AJ Chambry. That would be you, right? AJ Hello, C. yes, sir. And CB1, that's me. We're talking the great game of tennis as it, it seems, seems to us. us. Thanks also go out to our good amigos at Tex-Mex Productions. That would be Darian D-Mac with Brayer and Dave the Brain DeLeo from back of the house. We're on the soundboards, moving the dials and buttons to make us sound like real people tonight, aren't we? We're not okay. Memorex. No, uh-uh. We're yeah. not robots. We're not we're, 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 we're even real news and not fake news. That's, we're we're bringing correct. it tonight, baby. We're bringing it tonight. Yeah, we got a good one tonight, too. Also, be sure to check out our good work on Fireside, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor Breaker, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Basically, it's all the communication sites that you would need to listen to podcasts, right, AJ? Every single one. And if you're a female, sorry, gentlemen, but if, we don't like guys to do this, but we want them... Uh, the ladies to read our Athenet intro and be an Athenet girl, right, AJ? Even in a foreign accent, foreign language, we're ready for you, girls. Yes, please do. So uh, hit us up on that because we do like uh, uh, having uh, the female voices, even in the foreign language, right? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Well, tonight, this is one of our biggies. I'm really honored and privileged to have Dr. Alan Fox. You know, I, man, this, this guy doesn't need an intro hardly. I mean, there ain't anything that you haven't done, Dr. Fox, is there? See how humble the guy is. Yes, he's Amazing, a, yeah, no. Dr. Fox. I mean, he's, he's a he's a former player, yeah. uh, a really great player. Also, coached tennis, uh, has written books, broadcast. You know, published a lot of great things. As uh, uh, a noted uh, psychologist as yeah. well. Also has a, a PhD, pretty smart guy. Maybe he can analyze us tonight. You know, maybe tell us why, why we're who we are. Right? <laughs> analyze this, as right. they say. You yeah. guys are a little too quick for that. Oh no, I don't know about that. Me, but anyway, I'm from I'm from Oklahoma, Doctor Fox. <laughs> we're not that smart, you know. So that's uh, yeah. But but anyway, you know, Doctor Fox. And all seriously, we, we are uh, grateful to have you here. Yeah. Uh, I did find a quote from the great Wayne. This will tell it all. It says that uh, we were on an, an email thread just today, and I picked this up and it said, just wonderful that you got quotes and insight from the great Dr. Alan Fox. Smartest guy in the room always, and he assists the top of the tennis pole for sure. So, Love it. Right there from the great Wayne Bryan, who is the father of the Bryan brothers. Yeah. I mean, you can't ask for a higher uh, accolade from a gentleman who's uh, – has two great, uh, two of the greatest doubles players ever. You know, not just one, but two of the doubles yeah. players. Yeah. So, uh, also, all seriously, Doctor Fox. I mean, is there anything? I was thinking about the first question I wanted to ask you. Is there anything in tennis that you've not done that you want to do? I mean, I'm just curious. I'm going to ask a futuristic question. I'm going to lead off. Is there any? Jeez, Craig, we usually do this at the end. I know. Here no, you are, man. I'm, I'm going straight for the jugular yeah, right now. I love it. I want to know. Is there Tell it. What's left to do? I would like to have done or do, uh, and that is um, uh, my my is the mental game, mm. of course. Sure. And I, I've written books on it. Uh, and my last book, Tennis: Winning the Mental Match, 
really encompassed about everything I've managed to learn over the last 40 years in the game. But uh, what I would be to do some shows, like a TV show uh, on, on the mental game, a series maybe of TV shows on the mental game, where we could talk about various uh, aspects of the then have some footage to show and, and, and watch it in action. I mean, that, that would be my ideal thing, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen. I um, think it that, is. Number one, we could host it. We could get some mutual friends, some guys you've worked with, Jeff Greenwald well, um, you know, John Yandel, Brad Gilbert. There are some guys that you have helped uh, do a little, should I say it in quotes, overachieve a little bit. Yeah. And that's the mental that's the mental edge you're, you're giving guys. Well, you have a buddy, Mark Provisero, that might play. We've actually had... Uh, uh, producer, Hollywood yes. producer, yeah. He, he might be yeah. able to... To uh, throw throw uh, some ideas, yeah. some thoughts. That might might be an yeah, interesting he was, person. Uh, yeah, he was a guest on our show back in August. Yes, of uh, nineteen. Uh, so that might be a connection. Uh, gosh, I, I also want to kind of kick things off by saying, you know, we're not that much younger than you, Doctor Fox. But I've learned so much. We've learned so much from those books, especially if I'm the better player, why can't I win? And that was a huge influence in my life. And of course, I read it in my twenties as a player. But I read it in my 30s, and I'm just a better man for it. So massive thanks, Doc. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. That was the first book I ever wrote, mm -hmm. which was, I think I wrote that in the late 70s. 70s. Uh, and, and actually, there was hardly a field of sports psychology in existence then. So I was sort of scrambling to put together, you know, experience so uh I, I i think that book was good for its time i hate to knock my own books but uh, there's a lot that i've learned since then i i don't think i, I when i wrote that book i i, I understood the point yeah but i didn't understand it uh in a broad enough in a broad enough perspective like uh, in that first book uh, i i don't really make the point that that tends to be an emotional game. From this, the essence of it is, it's an emotional game. That's why people have so much difficulty competing. Uh, and and so I didn't understand. I, I mean, I knew that there was a aspect. I didn't quite understand the game as as emotional as it is. And that essentially, when you're competing, you're trying to control emotion. And you're trying to use emotion to help you mm. and stop. And the other thing I did when I wrote that first book is that the the, uh, the game is not uh, made for our emotional system particularly. We weren't designed to play two or three hour tennis matches under pressure and fine motor movement. We, our, our emotional system wasn't designed for that. It becomes stressful. Uh, and, and it's difficult. And, and I, I didn't quite understand it in, in broad context like that. In other words, you have nature, actually, to compete at your best. To be effective, you have to, like, overpower natural uh, emotional impulses, mm. which is very difficult. For instance, it, it is normal to get angry or frustrated when you're playing badly and you're getting beaten. That's only normal. 
<laughs> that's how our emotional system is designed. Or it's also designed when you get behind to get discouraged. Mm. It comes through in your later books, and I, I want to ask um, at the front end here, did you have that emotional control when you were ripping people at the Pacific Coast Championships and uh, going not just undefeated, but not even dropping a set in the Davis Cup ties that you played for the United States? Uh, I did understand it, actually, uh, up to a point. Yeah. I, I, I understood it as far as I was concerned. Like, I had a bad temper, for instance. I'm a very driven person. Uh, and, and I did have a bad temper and, and sort of tolerance. And so that hurt me many a time mm. in the juniors. And then I think, I don't know when I was 19 or 20, one day when I was losing and getting angry, the thought entered my mind. Uh, like, a, it came into my brain saying, you know, I already know how this is going to end up. Mm -hmm. If I keep getting mad like this, I'm just going to lose. That's all. I'm going to lose, and there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I can't get angry any good. It's just I'm going to get madder and madder, and, 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 and I'm going to get worse and worse, and I could, you know, sort of see how it was going to end. And so at that point, I decided, you know, I'm just not going to get mad anymore. I'm not going to do it. I basically, I can't afford it. I think that was the words I used to myself. Mm -hmm. I can't afford to do this anymore. So this this was in your college <laughs> days prior to your, because you grew up in Southern California. I was going to tell the audience that you grew up in California, went on to play. I had a stellar career actually at UCLA, doing just about everything in the collegiate game you could uh, from, from Southern Cal. So was, was this in the early days of college tennis or was this even back into your high school days? That you're well, Thanks for going to Denny's that back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. Of, uh, that's a, uh, yeah. I, I don't know how to answer that. No, no, we're just, yeah. What, yeah, we're just joking with it, you. It was more than yeah. 20. It was more than 20. Yeah. It was 30. It was $30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 what? Well,
But I lost them to good players who you probably never heard of. One of them was Chuck McKinley. Of he course. Oh, sure. And, yeah, uh, legend there. Beat me yeah. Those are my losses. I, I, I was a very consistent player. Uh, by that time, I learned to control my temper. Uh, and I was a workhorse. Uh, uh, I, I didn't have great physical talent, actually. Uh, I was good. I was fast. It was yeah. Maybe the one athletic skill I really did have, I, I could run. I was quick, and, and I had pretty good hands. Uh, but I wasn't a great athlete. As I remember seeing you play in your 40s or 50s, long after your pro career, you're an average height guy, but you didn't really play that Leighton Hewitt, David Ferrer, Michael Chang game. You came to the net a lot, and you were ridiculously quick, uh, even at the yeah. you were 50. Well, I was a third volley guy, yeah. but of course everybody was. Uh, what what say? It's an interesting game in terms of talent versus discipline. Mm. For instance, I was stronger on discipline, uh, and so. Uh, and I was a practice fiend. I would spend all day on the court hitting tennis balls all the time. Every uh, The thought I had in the back of my mind was, the tennis court, I'm not going to get any better. And so I was going to stay out there. And so that made up uh, that made up for, uh, you know, some lacks of physical ability. Uh, example, like some are technique sports mm -hmm. and, and if you're a mechanical person you do better for instance bowling bowling for it, sure yeah if you were had a mechanical arm and always did the same thing you'd be the greatest bowler ever the ball would always see uh, and other sports are you have to do more adjustments but tennis is kind of somewhere in the middle where there's a lot of repetition so if you go out and discipline your forehand and discipline your backhand and you work, you can kind of put it together and maybe beat a better athlete than you. If you've disciplined your, your habits, you know, more than others. So tennis was pretty good for me. I mean, uh, I, I had my limits. So in essence, in essence, you were playing well. So in essence, right. you were a court rat instead of a gym rat. In basketball terms, it's a gym mm. rat. On tennis terms, it'd be a court rat. You'd be out there all day, all night. Yeah, I was long. a court rat. I'd Just, get up yeah. like, I was quite happy on week on the clock and go play with Carl Earn, who was the pro out at Hillcrest. Yeah. And then I'd have matches all day long. I played 15 sets one day. Oh, my goodness. Quite, quite happily. You know, all singles. <laughs> right. Well, I thought I played a lot, but that's, that's double what I did. Sets in one day, yeah. fifteen sets. That's 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 yeah, unbelievable. That, that was probably my record. Although I, had, I would start early and play till I couldn't see the ball anymore. Sure. And, and and that was. Uh, I always wondered. You know, it was a funny one. The tennis. I, I was not a great player, but I was quite a good player. You know. Uh, but you whatever. got to play. I, I got up to four in the United States. Sure. Yeah. Was no, that's... my highest ranking. But but. Uh, I never understood that good because I wasn't that good at basketball or football or like baseball. I, I thought, yeah, there must have been some some God must have touched me in some way that I don't know. But in later years, I realized I hit more tennis balls than anybody else sure. was willing to do.
<laughs> I was out there all day, and no one, most other people won't do that. Hey, so, how, so how'd you get started in the game? Was your was your mom and dad were they tennis players? Grandma, grandpa, was, or well, just down the park? I started late, late, and I started to play tennis because my mother forced me to. She she liked I don't know why she liked tennis. This was I was almost fourteen at the time, and she gave me two lessons with a. I, we lived in Tucson at the time, and she gave me two lessons with a University of Arizona player. He sort of taught me how to hold the racket, you know, and then she sicked me on the backboard, you know, and, and said, you're a tag. <laughs> and then she'd go away. We lived right near the University of Arizona. So I'd, I'd go and I'd hit for an hour on the backboard. And, and, and that was how I started in the game. And it got it got you ready for the heat. I bet. Yeah, well, I never. It wasn't in the summer. Luckily. Okay. I don't think any normal human could play no. in the summer. Uh, I, but uh, what it did is, I I played my first tournament. Uh, it was a Tucson fifth when I'd been playing about three months or so, two and a half, three months, and I got to the semifinals. Okay. Now, the reason I got to the semifinal is because Tucson was a very small town. There were only four players in it. So, <laughs> but, but hey. I can see I wasn't that far off. Right, right. 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 You're one match from the play. finals. <laughs> yeah. If I could be three other guys, I'd be the best player in Tucson. Number play. one, baby. Yeah. yeah actually, I had uh -huh. And so, oh. I, I was serving underhand in the tournament. And I remember... <laughs> Uh, this gal who had seen me hitting, she was a member of the, the University of Arizona women's team. Oh. A, a gal named Mary Acton. And came up behind the court when I was, like, serving underhand. And she said to me, Alan, you know, if you serve underhand like this, you're never going to be a player. <laughs> and I turned around to Mary and I said, Mary, if I... I'm going to lose this match right now. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. I'm interested yeah. in trying to win this match. First things first. Come on. we got to, I got to crawl before I can walk, you know? Yeah. So uh, that was my beginning. The only other skill I had, and this is kind of why I became a physicist in a way, is I was quite logical on the mechanics. And it was I knew to hit topspin on backhands and forehands. Figured that out Interesting. all by myself. <laughs> Back in that in the in the fifties. Yeah, that's, that's early. There wasn't, yeah, there yeah, wasn't in much the fifties I knew to hit over the backhand. You sure. don't don't I slice it if I have to, but getting top spin, obviously you can hit it harder and right. keep it in. Hit it. So, uh, most people slice the backhand back in the day. Sure. Uh, and they could hit it maybe flat, but they didn't have top spin. So that was a little advantage I had. As, a, as, uh, as I recall, you had a continental grip, too, uh, even into the 90s. Uh, so like McEnroe, Laver, like Craig and me, too, yeah. we grew up with one grip and uh, hitting tops in both sides and obviously slicing both sides. Um, so that's, that's neat and impressive. And was everybody hitting topspin in your era? Of Manolo Santana, the, maybe a few guys like Lou Hode? He hit topspin. For sure. Most people slice. Yeah. Like the greatest players in the world in my day uh, slice. Like Pancho Gonzalez. Right. Slices his backhand. Sucre backhand. Uh, Ken Se uh, uh, 
Frank Sedgman. Well, Roswell hit it sort of flat with a yeah. little slide. Didn't hit topspin. Uh, Hoge could hit over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Traver could hit over it. But most of them slice. Nato, uh, Neil Fraser, Mal Anderson, all the Australian slice. Uh, Jack Kramer, even, of the American slice. Mm. Uh, uh, why they would do that, I, I couldn't understand it. I, I was happy that they did. Because, it, 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 you know, the game was played servant volley. And the worst thing you can do uh, against a volleyer is slice the passing shot. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's not a good high. idea. Right. But that's, that's what people did. Was that when Bill and Chet Murphy were around Arizona at the time? Not yet. <laughs> that, was, that was before. Before then? That oh, was, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was before. It was 1954, mm-hmm. 53, 4. Because they, uh, they were out, out in Arizona for, for a time being probably, was in the 60s? Did they come out in the 60s? Yeah, I think in the 60s. Murphy, weren't they from uh, Northern Cal? Berkeley I think so. Area? Yeah. One of my first books I, I read was from... Was Chet from, Murphy. Yeah, Chet Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's why I was sitting yeah, there going, yeah, I'm trying to sure. calculate in my mind how far back that, you know, with the Murphy yeah. brothers be there that that age. Yeah, yeah. I think when I was playing, I don't know that that Arizona had much in the way of teams. When I was in grad school at UCLA, they started to get better teams. They had a guy named Dave Snyder was the coach. Sure. Yeah. yeah you in, in the '60s. Uh, and he had Bill Lenore on the team, who was a heck of a player. Sure. And so they got good then. Yeah, he, he came over to Austin yeah, a few years he, after that. Austin, right. Yeah, so he was there right. for... Right, of the University of Texas. Yeah, yeah for was, a long time. Yeah, so, uh, so when did you move Clark over to... Goes. When did you move over to uh, Southern Cal then? What, what, 16. 16, So okay. high school. Okay. I've been playing about two, two and a half years by the time... Uh, and. and for whatever reasons, I accelerated very fast. Uh, I understood certain things, which made me, you know, I mean, I understood when I was young to hit the ball in the court. I knew that the object was to, you know, kick the ball in the court and run, okay, which uh, I, I got relatively good at doing. So I kind of I kind of went at the game. Uh, I went up faster than I would have figured. But again, I hadn't. I didn't realize that most people weren't practicing eight hours a day like I was. So, so do you feel like if you would have stayed in the Southwest section, that your game might not have improved? Because I'm sure Southern Cal at that time was the hotbed of tennis, so that that forced you to get better too, didn't it? Absolutely right. That's why we moved. Oh, uh, okay. My, my dad had died when I was ten. Oh, wow. And so it was my mother, my brother, and I, mm-hmm. and son, and and. I got to be the best player. Uh, at, by the time I was 16, I was the best player in the Southwest United States for 18 and under. So I could pretty much beat everybody within a couple of years of it. And so that was kind of the impetus for moving to Southern Cal. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and I was far from the best player in Southern Cal. <laughs> kind of so a culture that, shock when you got there. He was like, oh, wait a minute good players and, and it was it was an intimidating you know kind of place to go to but uh, but you probably knew them though most of you probably you know you were around certain people at that time I'm sure that you saw those people in tournaments or you kind of knew who they were I would imagine December well I, I, 
would, yeah, I'd, I'd heard of them by reputation and name. And I did go back and play Kalamazoo. Uh, and so I knew them from Kalamazoo. Gotcha. You know, it's, you know I, I was the nobody. So I did know who they were. You were but, the punky kid from Southwest uh, Arizona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's uh, this guy? Who's this guy? <laughs> but, but I got... Uh, I was so hungry for practice. Like in Tucson, I could never quite get enough. You know, there weren't enough players, and I just sure. couldn't get enough practice. And, and when I got to Los Angeles, there were lots of players. I could get all the tennis I wanted. It was, it was heaven for me. Sure. Loved it. Play all day. <laughs> and lo lots of players around. Where were, the so, some, where were some of the places that you, you, you played in Southern Cal? Did you go over to Palisades? or Where was the hot, hot spot of, of tennis in Southern Cal at that time? The L.A. Oh. The place for tennis. Gotcha. Hancock uh, Park. We recorded our episode with Mark uh, at L.A. Tennis Club. Oh, really? Yeah, just uh, uh, oh, back yeah. in August. Yeah. It, was, it was the club. I mean, everybody knew what you meant when you said the club. Yeah. Right. Was, well, then he Alice was and Kramer yeah. and all the great players. So, yeah. That, uh, and and w what happened was... When, when I came into Southern Cal, I, I, I was relatively, uh, you know, quicker than I would have figured. I, I sort of moved up in Southern Cal with all the competition. And so I got to be like number three or four in Southern California mm -hmm. in the first year I was there. That was like my junior year in high school. And so uh, they gave me a guest membership to the club. <laughs> and so That's I was cool. able to get practice down there which was fantastic absolutely uh, I, i'm fascinated uh, I, i'm fascinated from the standpoint just in about seven years you went from a relatively serving underhand to winning the ncaa championships in 1961 is that correct is that that's correct boy yeah. hey, that that's, is yeah that, that is remarkable that Dr. career Dr. arc um okay so uh average to maybe slightly above average um uh, athleticism Topspin backhand for passes didn't miss much. What are some of the? Those are the physical things. But what, what are some of the mental reasons that you went from uh, being a to being an NCAA champion twice? Well, uh, I, I think I had learned uh, emotional discipline. I mm -hmm. learned learned to control myself, which most players hadn't learned quite yet. Uh, that were my. Um, I, I I also. Uh, was good at developing drills that would uh, I, I understood that the game was a function of habits mm -hmm. okay practice the whole purpose of practice is habit development and into a match then it's emotional control the habit is whatever it is and so I, I understood the idea of habits and repetition and and, and and the next thing I had to develop was was my volley which good at it first mainly through lack of athletic ability i see uh, but i was watching the best players and i saw what they did when they volleyed and i noticed that like when i practiced my volley i stood there took one and then you know did whatever the book said to do punch it yeah uh, but i noticed that the good players actually were moving as they hit it they would be moving forward and they'd hit it on the move and so I developed 
a series of exercises where I would get back behind the service line uh, when I was practicing with somebody. I'd get behind the service line, and then I'd run forward on each lolly I hit, and then I'd back up, and then I'd run forward again, uh-huh. which was a lot of work, and most people weren't willing to do it. I see. Uh, but what, what helped me to make the next jump was uh, just developing exercises where that's how I became a volley. I was a baseliner uh, until about 18 or 19. And, and, and then I started to go to the net more at 19. So, uh, but I had to figure out exactly what the habits were and then practice them. So physical, and, physical attributes, volume of practice and quality of practice. Um, the guy who's ranked number one right now is Novak Djokovic. This is a guy who went from, I would say, erratic emotional control and not that good a serve. And now he has a good serve and have to say he's a PhD in emotional control. Take us through some of the things that you think made a difference in that guy's life when he went from, uh, you know, punk kid who does impressions to dominant guy who might be an all-time. Well, I I really don't like his emotional control, to be honest. Mm. I I think he's a lot better at it than he used to be. Yeah, for sure. Years ago, he he was uh, a great physical talent but emotionally stable. Uh, he still reacts emotionally more than I would I would advise most people to do. He gets away with it. I mean, yeah. also, there's a, um, a relationship between how confident you are. You can deal with uh, letting your emotions go a little. Uh, and, and that is when you're really very, very confident, you can have a little more leeway with your emotions, okay? When you have to control them more. Mm. Now, one example of that would have been McEnroe, okay? Now, when he was uh, when he was winning everything, he, you know, he would get angry or whatever, but he would win. Uh, he took off about nine months at one stage of his career. And when he came back, he wasn't quite as confident as he was before. And so then uh, getting emotional didn't help him, hurt him. But, you know, the great players like Pancho Gonzalez and Jimmy Connors would be another one. They actually could get angry and then play well. All right. For whatever reasons they did. Uh, the nervous guys, very unusual. But most people can't do that. Yeah, those three, those three are the Mount Rushmore uh, of uh, playing well while angry. Yeah, you can't. Most players can't do that. I mean, Federer was a good example. He was one of the great young talents. Everybody knew he was a genius, but he had a bad temper. Mm. And so, you know, when he was eighteen, he took a lot of losses. Nineteen also, but he learned. Now, if you watch Federer. He learned, I guess, kind of what I learned is, you know, don't have any emotional reaction when you miss. Okay? It's just, you, you want to let it go right over your head. Uh, and, and you can do that if you decide to do it. It's unnatural. So, so, a, guy, okay? so a, guy, a, lot, a guy like Borg, did he hold it in too much then? You know, because he. Well, I don't, you know, uh, and, and the idea of holding it in. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I don't think that's a good idea. 
the trick is not to have it. Sure. Mm, gotcha. In other words, you don't want to get, like, get angry, but you're just not going to throw your racket. Okay. That, yeah. You know, the, the, your, your game will function best if you're emotionally feeling good. And, and, and if you're angry, whether you show it or you don't, it's usually a bad play. Because yeah, I never saw him really kind of fist pump or say vamos or yeah. he just never he just no. had one blank look all the time. Yeah. I don't know if he was yeah, enjoying yeah, it or not. Just, you know, to be honest. Man, sure. In yeah. Fans, yeah. And, and he wasn't going to allow himself to get emotional about a point. He just didn't get emotional. But you can do that if you you have to discipline yourself. though. sure, right. You have you have to decide that you're not emotion at the end of a point, which. You know, of all the things that I've learned in tennis, which I did put in that last book, which I didn't really put in the first book, mm. you know, if I'm the better player. But the most important thing that I've learned uh, is is don't feel anything at the end of a point, uh, unless it's going to do you some good, unless yeah. you want to. For instance, if you're getting, uh, like, tight, or it's, and you might want to, get some adrenaline maybe uh, or if you need energy uh, and you're trying to drive yourself like Federer does it late in a set often or sometimes he'll he'll pump up mm. because what he wants to do is basically lose his conservatism yep. like if it's getting tight most most people will tend to get conservative okay as, as, as you go to finish somebody you might get conservative don't want to do that you and so you might want to lose your mind a little bit with adrenaline you know you smack yourself on the side go yeah and, and, and kind of you're running on adrenaline and not thinking too much okay. <laughs> like i read tilden's book that was one of the ways i learned to play tennis match play and book. the match play and the spin of the ball yeah it's a genius yeah the, one genius. of the finest books Most people, you took us yeah. through something very real, and that is to purposefully not think, um, to purposefully not have emotions after a point, good or bad. Um, right. Geniuses like McEnroe and Jimmy can probably feel something and use the negativity. A guy like Borg, um, you know, I think that's a freak. But somewhere in the middle lies the rest of us. We've got a listener, Kendall Jordan, asking, what about Yvonne Lendl for emotional? See him as kind of in the middle. Tell us your impressions of how he went from a guy who choked in a lot of Grand Slam semis and finals and lost two pretty bad ones in 82 and 83 to Jimmy uh, in New York and then went on a tear. 
the uh, the 84 French. Yeah, after he beat uh, McEnroe, yep. he was down two sets to one. Yeah. Yep. I think what happened with him is his confidence. I mean, his problem uh, wasn't. Didn't, I, I many times. I, yeah. Uh, I didn't notice him getting particularly emotional. That was not his. He was not a McEnroe or anything like that. He didn't seem to react very much. His problem seemed to be when things against Jimmy, he would he would uh, get discouraged. Mm. He lost to Jimmy twice in the finals of the U.S. Open. Ba badly, when Jimmy, yeah. When Jimmy was over the hill. Yeah, one of them was a there was a six zero set in there. It was not yeah. uh, pretty, yeah, as I recall. And the six zero set, yeah, you pretty much know at that level was a discouragement set. Yeah. You can tell by the score. He, he was subject to discouragement. And and I think what happened with him is he's down. He comes back and wins it. Yeah. And suddenly the light bulb goes off in his mind that I can win no matter what the score is against anybody. Don't get discouraged. Good, okay. good, I mean, good advice. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was saying, uh, Mac did manage to beat Lendl in the U.S. Open final a few months later, but that was pretty much it. From 85 on, Lendl went on a tear, and I remember uh, seeing, gosh, that's a large, strong guy, Yvonne Lendl, and even when at the umpire about Jimmy or about whatever, uh, he sounded like a little, little fellow with a high voice, and he sounded, like you said, discouraged, and I'm happy the way you encapsulated that. And then from about 85 on, he was sounded and walked like the guy in charge and uh you know the, the the numbers don't lie right yeah and i and i think the antidote hmm. to discouragement is hope okay realizing that that the game is a percentage problem hmm. okay don't get emotional about it if you're down a set in a service break and and you have to bet you know you bet on the other guy of course uh but you don't have to, and 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 there is hope as long as you're as long as you're still out there. So uh, if if you focus, it's like a door closing when you're behind. Mm. You know, you don't focus on the part of the door that's closed. Little crack that may still be open. Okay, and 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 that's that's where the focus should be, as mm. opposed to how bad you're playing. And, and how far behind you are, and how awful the day is, or whatever. You 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 have to to make yourself optimistic. Not not meaning that you think you're going to win or you're going to win or what. It's just that you might win. You might come back if you do everything right. You know your opponent. There's all kinds of things when they're ahead. You know they could get tight trying to finish you, and you could turn the whole thing around. When you when you're playing that when you're playing that level of tennis, is it more from a training standpoint? You know that you're in great shape and you can outlast this player, or is it preparation that you have to put in in order to believe in yourself after you push through, open that door? I mean, because is it is it form of fashion or function? I mean, do you have to really practice the number of hours, or is it is it mentally something in your mind that it says that you know is it, what is it that, that unlocks that secret? You think? Yeah, I, you know, to me, confidence mostly it comes from two areas. Uh, and there, the, the whole idea of uh, 
visualizing or repeating to yourself, I am good, I will win. I don't know about that stuff. <laughs> that uh, never quite made sense to me totally. You're talking about the affirmations, yeah. the, the positive self-talk? Yeah, yeah, I mean, positive, I don't, you know, I don't like those words. I'm with They're you. fancy. I, 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 I just like big psychological words. Oh, jargon, okay. yeah, jargon is one of those jargon. things we make fun of a lot, yeah. So Dr. Stewart's yeah, knowledge, it, it, is that to me, jargon yeah. in a, <laughs> uh, a way that you can make uh, small thoughts appear uh, more profound. Mm. You, you, <laughs> you make a big word for it, it sounds like it's more important than it is. You know, uh, should I, uh, there's a lot of them in psychology. There are, my goodness. It, it, I, I don't like that stuff. You are you are speaking our language. We yeah. have a uh, a segment that we're not going to go into, but you've basically already done it. Uh, we have a segment sometimes, coach making fun of coaches. It's a direct ripoff of Jerry Seinfeld's comedians in cars getting coffee, and we always make fun of the uh, the coaches who love to not oversimplify but overcomplicate uh, everything. Yeah doing it it's kind of sad yeah to enhance their their power yeah to enhance their you know uh, whatever what people think of them and now, i'll give you an example yeah, in psychology please. would be the self-esteem theories i mean that is in my opinion ridiculous yeah okay self-esteem some psychologists came up with it what you're talking about is confidence aren't yeah. you i mean that's it. That's it's it. Another, but you, you've taken a word that hands are ready, and you turned it into something that sounds like it's a big deal. I mean, uh, and, and I'm just going to work my way back to confidence. Please, I mean, please, yeah. What, 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 what confidence comes from? Just this is, and uh, in, in, in my experience, uh, it comes from genetics. I mean, some people are just born more confident than others, okay? That's just how, how their nervous system works. Mm. You know, they have... Uh, but the other place it comes from is success. Unless you get you, you get confident by winning, you know? It, you, you don't get confident particularly by thinking about winning. You get confident by winning. It's mm. so, uh, and and the self-esteem, the self-esteem theories you know, have turned that all upside down. In other words, people develop self-esteem because they get proficient at stuff. Mm. You know, they have some successes in their life. Well in school or they work hard in their job and do well in their job. In other words, it's through performance that you develop confidence or we could call it self-esteem. Uh, but what, what the, the self-esteem psychologists have turned it around and they've said, well, first let's give him self-esteem, and then he'll get he'll get wins. He'll get better. Okay, so we're going to tell him he's good no matter what he does. All right, we'll tell you. Oh, well, you lost a great player. No, <laughs> I think it's better if he wins some matches. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, telling people they're great when they're not. They know it's not true. It isn't real confidence. They can say they have it, but they don't perform and, and and so if it's you're losing a lot what some of the pros do is you go play easier tournaments yeah so you get some wins and then you feel more confident and you can move up so and, and uh, 
seen that even on the pro tour with guys dipping down, winning two or three challengers, or at least getting seven or eight matches, and then coming back and making a real assault on uh, big tournaments like slams. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have your game pressed when, when you're not confident, you know? You'd like to have a little bit of leeway so you can sort of test out your game and, and consolidate it, and then you can move up to tougher guys. So what Andre but did? Andre, Andre went to Vegas. Ranked 141, yeah. played a couple challengers, and then obviously made a nice he comeback. He had pretty yeah. good skills. Yeah. yeah. He, 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 went off the... he lost in the first challenger. Probably. Right. He did, yeah. So, Cal. Yeah. I think he won the second one and then right. went back ultimately to number one in the world. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah. I, this is gold, Alan, and I want people who uh, play recreational tennis and also the high-performance junior and aspiring college and tour player crowd to hear all this. Can you take us a little bit through the emotional control? Uh, it's, it's one of those matches that's that's seared in my brain. It was just under a year ago when Roger Federer had some match points to win Wimbledon and Novak showed some resolve. Do you think Roger got tight? Can you take us through? I'm guessing you saw that. I did. Yeah. I, I, I saw it. I, I love Federer, of course. Me too. Like any reasonable human being would. Right. Uh, and so I'm pulling for him. Yeah. And he, I think he was serving for the match. Yes. Up, up 40-15. Match point. And I started thinking to myself, oh, God, this is exactly the situation he was in in the U.S. Open semi against yes. Scott. And, okay. and Novak ripped that forehand at the U.S. Open. Not right. as much the case in this one. Take us through. Well, he, he was in that same situation a couple of years earlier. Mm, yeah. And he went for the wide serve in the deuce court on the 40-15 point. But what he did, he, he, he sort of thought he had Novak on the ropes, that Novak was sort of, which he was, mm -hmm. okay? And so he went wide to the forehand, but he went conservatively wide. He didn't go wide enough, okay? And it went into uh, Djokovic's strike zone. Right. So he hit a great return. And then on the next one, Federer screwed it up somehow. I forget what happened. I believe he it was a, a tentative volley. He had a duck on the yeah. pond there. That was sitting no. there. I mean, yeah, was... I, I forget whether he hit the top of the net. And I, I, yeah. I don't remember what happened. I think he had the shot he wanted. Yes. In, in one of the, on the thirty on the forty thirty point. Yes, he yeah. did. And, and, and he either didn't do enough with it or didn't put it away or missed it. I don't remember what. I think and, they were putting his name on the trophy. Sort of, Hey, uh, as, as Federer, I will naturally focus on what did Roger do and what should he have done. Can you take us... He shouldn't have fallen apart. Right. Hey, good. Good answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, okay. In both cases, by the way, in the second one... Yeah. Uh, just, Please. When, mm -hmm. when he's in the, in the finals at Wimbledon, he's up 40-15. I'm thinking to myself... I'll bet you, I don't want him to be thinking and worrying about this situation, like like what happened last time. Mm. So, if he's worrying about it, he's not going to serve the wide one. He's going to go up the tee with it. Okay? <laughs> and he did go up the tee. So, I knew he was, he already had thought about the last one. All right? He, he didn't go wide again. The tee. Mm. And, all right? And so he was already getting a little tight. And he, he lost both, both those matches by getting tight and then uh, sort of losing confidence in 
maybe a bit of hope and drive and excitement. Mm. You know, his his energy level maybe have gone down a little bit. I don't think he won another game in either of those matches when he got down. When when or maybe he did. And yeah, the first one he didn't win another game. I don't think. In, not in. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and he was in, open. I think he lost every game after that. In, in the and, in that Wimbledon one, he. Uh, held serve and made it to that 12 all. So he won a few more, but they weren't decisive in the rest of that set leading up to that eight all or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was losing a little speed. It wasn't the same uh, guy. Uh, to talk, if you could talk about what Novak was going through as a, you know, as more of a Federer fan, I'm interested in seeing what is that on the other side doing to come back from 1540 to lifting yet another trophy and to having an actual winning record over Federer on grass. That's crazy to me. Well, in the first one, uh, he, he was sort of half in the bag. Yeah. He was half in the bag on that forehead. He hit it as hard as he could, and it went in. Flat. Because, yeah, because he didn't give a damn yeah. anymore. Yeah, he didn't care. And, uh, you know, uh, but he's so talented yeah. that he wailed it and it went in. Then tight and loses the next one. Then Djokovic starts to think to himself, ah, the guy's choking here. <laughs> you, know, you know, he's not that far behind. They are yeah. in the fifth set after all. I mean, it's, it's, it's only a few points and he's right back in. At, at that point, you know, he, he, he hangs tough uh, at the U.S. Open and then Federer kind of wilts a bit and he beats him. So now in the next one at Wimbledon, it, not only is Federer thinking of, so is Djokovic. Okay, Djokovic remembers that match as well when Federer was up forty fifteen, mm. and he sees Federer get tight a bit now. But now Djokovic has already won one of them, so he's feeling, but Federer, you know, isn't. Good. So it was easier for Djokovic in the second one mm. because he had the first one, you know, in his backlog. So, you know, it, it, that builds your confidence a little when you do that. Federer's confidence a little. It seems like he plays differently against Rafa and Joker. I mean, every time I see, he's, he's going through six matches. He looks effort, effortless. He's, he's doing his ballet. Fred, Roger, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's doing his Fred Astaire routine. He looks yeah. great out there. Beautiful. Yeah. And then, then all of a sudden, you know, the wheels come off the bus, and I'm like, yeah. Roger, come well, on. Against, against both of them, but particularly yeah. against Djokovic. Yeah. Uh, Federer uh, has to redline, okay? He has to push his game because if he gets into it, it's not good for him nope. on the baseline. I mean, he relies on a, a, a very good first serve, you know, either aces or, you know, mid-court return where he can hurt him with the forehand mm -hmm. and finish at the net. He's into body punching on the baseline because his backhand is eventually going to miss probably. Uh, so uh, he has to, but if he, if you get tight and and you're pushing him, uh, that's very difficult. Mm. That's very. He's gonna miss the first serve when he's tight. So what, okay, what when he's you, feeling good, he's gonna ace him. But when he isn't, you know, and he's gonna get into too many uh, body punching uh, situations with him. So I'm interested to hear Pepperdine and this. Shift just real quick. What would you tell your college guys? You could see see that happening to uh, a Brad Gilbert, a Robbie Weiss, uh, Kelly Jones. If you, you could probably sense that, did you go over and talk to them, or did you let them play through it? I mean, what? No, I would. I would talk. 
would try to loosen them up. I try to loosen them up and 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 make them feel good. Mm. And most of the stuff I was doing as a coach was trying to get them feeling good, give them hope. You know, sometimes when things were really going bad, I go out there and say, you know, you got them right where you want them now. Love it. <laughs> yeah, he's up a set and two breaks. <laughs> now you got him. You know? Come on, <laughs> yeah. Come on, Brad. So you got this. Laugh. Yeah. You know, just, so it's not life and death. I mean, I think one other thing that people should keep in mind in tennis is that you, you basically play the game for fun. Yes. <laughs> That's the object of it. Amen. Okay. When it starts with unpleasant, you know, you're hurting yourself for not good reason. You know, it is just a game. <laughs> Although, because it's an emotional game, uh, it starts to feel like it's more important than that. But it isn't. Out of those guys on your team, I'm I'm interested to hear or, or anybody or just open anybody. it up, yeah, yeah. open it up to Who's the tour, best? everything. Yeah, my best coaching job was Marty Lorendo. Oh, oh yeah. okay. Canadian guy, yeah, yeah. But at Pepperdine, uh, not a scholarship guy and mm-hmm. not highly ranked in Canada and the juniors. Uh, and he, he walked on because I had a top Canadian player. Uh, named Glenn Mitchabata, sure. was a heck of a player. Right. Uh, and so Marty came in because he knew Glenn, but he wasn't very good. He had, he had a, first, a good backhand, and that's it. He had basically not much of a forehand. And, uh, but what he had that I didn't really realize at first was he had a great work ethic and he was smart. Okay, and, and he could learn anything if you explained it to him in a way that was un- mm. he could he could then do it, and he was persistent. He would do it over and over till he got it. Okay, which he had a sort of a long term view, which most people don't have. They can't picture that if you do this for six months, it's going to come. Okay, Marty could do that. He was young- okay. he was the younger version of you. He's a younger version of me. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> so I understood Marty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was exactly that. And and so in his first year, he couldn't good players on the team. He wasn't good enough. Uh, there was another guy who was about his level, and they'd go practice every day. In his second year, Pepperdine, he had learned to hit the forehand basically in. <laughs> he had almost from scratch, learned how to hit a forehand, you know, get set up, use the shoulders, rotate, hit. Uh, and so he could hit the forehand and the backhand then. And so he, he played a few matches for us against the bad team. Okay. Uh, now the, his third year, he redshirted, by the way, his first year. Hmm. Uh, and so in his third year at Pepperdine, uh, he started to, uh, to get a bit of a volley. He was playing actually six for us. Uh, now, in, he'd gotten pretty good at the volley. He'd been practicing it now for <laughs> four years. Uh, and he'd gotten, so he could volley pretty well, doing that drill that I was mentioning. You know, that was the drill I used with my team virtually every day. They had to do that. So he, he'd gotten a, a pretty functional volley, and he was like in the middle of the, of, of the team at that point, maybe at three uh, and then in his final year, his fifth year, uh, he was an All-American, two or three for us, 
we were top five in the country. I think maybe we got to the finals that year of the NCAs. But uh, so, so then Marty went on the pro tour, and he ended up getting to the round of six open one year. Okay, he was a total serve volleyer yeah. at that stage, and he would come in on the other guy's second serve quite a bit, which is a very good play. Uh, and then he went on to become the Davis Cup coach of, for many, many years. And then he coached Shapovalov hmm. uh, when he turned pro. What so a- Ma- Ma- Marty was a, a great human being, just an admirable character of the highest order. What a and great so- transformation for from going from middling junior walking on in the 80s to being such a star in the late 80s. Yeah, I mean, how could that happen? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> you, you just wouldn't predict that he'd make it on the tour. If someone told me that Martin Lauren knows him to get to the round of six, and I would have laughed him out. You know, <laughs> that would be ridiculous. <laughs> Great. And, and you're going to help well, him anyway. get there. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, I am. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. And, and of course, Gilbert played for me. You're right. He That's... was the best player. Play, although yeah. I didn't think so at the time. Mm. I would have. Uh, I would have suggested that he get a good education going to business with his game, but he fooled me. He, he, he won <laughs> yeah. ugly. That that he... book, Winning Ugly, uh, that has a lot of your uh, handwriting all over it. I, I mean, see it. I, yeah. Even even his hair looks a little bit like you, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, or, or... Well, losing it. So don't say that. Okay, okay. His hair in the eighties and nineties. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, that one. right. And, and here's a mental trait that yes. is not well recognized. Uh-huh. But Gilbert had judgment. Okay, Gilbert had judgment mm. better than I realized. I I didn't realize at that point. Uh, the eighties. I didn't realize what a huge part. Uh, judgment plays in, in, in your performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, it, a, a guy, you can play somebody, and Gilbert did many times, play a player that is better than you in every aspect of the game. Better forehand, better backhand, better serve, better volley, and faster. Mm. And, and Gilbert could beat him. He, okay. he did this with Becker, I remember. Yeah, he beat Becker. Becker had everything better than yeah. Gilbert. Not as Gilbert could outrun him. Mm-hmm. But
because your opponent can do so much with the ball he gets there. So you're making that calculation on each ball you strike. Mm. And so this adds up over a period of a match. You know, you're hitting balls, you have a slight edge on each one of them, uh, your calculation, and, and it adds up and you beat them. So, That's so, how Gilbert did it. So in your practices, do you, do you practice more to improve somebody's weakness or do you to where it's really strong and they just kind of counterpunch with their weakness? You know, kind of a boxing vernacular. I've got a great right hand, so I just counterpunch with my left hand. You know, I, do I try to improve my left hand or just make my right hand that much better? I, I work on weakness. Okay. I work on weaknesses, but when the match comes, hide hide weaknesses and work on and, and try to bring your strengths into it. Because I think, now, we, yeah, yeah. Oh, so know, I was just going to say, I just think of a guy like Jimmy Arias. You know, he, he had this huge forehand yeah. and he hit forehands all over the place. I remember watching him play one day. I was like, wow, look at that guy. I never thought about hitting forehands from, you know, Three feet almost to the left the in the alley, ad court. Yeah, yeah, almost. In the ad court. Yeah. yeah. But here's a kid that really didn't have much of a backhand. And, it. and now everybody. Right. Yeah, so I didn't know if back in the day when you were, you know, coaching a lot yeah. or even playing, did, did you kind of work everything into it or just really practice on one thing in particular? I, uh, I tended to practice myself mm-hmm. on the things that I was okay. naturally, okay, interesting. which was my volley. Okay. I spent as much time at the net as I could, always. Uh, you know, at once after my college career, uh, it was all practice. I practiced it. Now, again, I, I, that doesn't mean I didn't. Sure. I, I, I used to practice those as well. But uh, now, now, when players came to Pepperdine, for instance, sure, that's yeah. I, I, I could, they could make a bigger jump if they improved their weaknesses than working on their strengths. Let's say take Marty Lorendo. Okay, he, he comes in with a, you know, he, Borg was kind of his idol at the time, and he's had a sort of a Borg-like backhand looking. Now, if he'd have practiced his backhand, it was already pretty good. How much better could he get? He could only get so much better, but I mean, he had no forehand. So adding a forehand could make a big jump for him. And then when you add in the volley, that could make even a bigger jump. So I think players can generally make bigger jumps if they spend a bit extra time on their weaknesses, especially if they approach it technically properly. Yeah. So, I you know, so on your college team, you were actually working a lot of different things. Do, do, you, do you think that today's play, uh, out on ball, as you said, can that can that game still be relevant today? Because it doesn't seem like people come to the net correctly. I, I just it drives me nuts. I don't know that. Uh, what's your thoughts on the volley game? Is it is it because of the people don't practice it enough, or the players are that much better than than they were thirty years ago? Well, the equation has slanted towards the baseliner mm-hmm. in the sure. last thirty years. I mean, they've <laughs> slowed the courts down, they've slowed the ball down, made it bigger, fluffier. Technology and increase the use of topspin. So the the, the baseliner is is a, is a tougher nut than he used to be. Or she used to be. No. Okay. Right. Uh, but they don't practice the volley. Uh, and, and and here's the thought. I mean, you could say to a player, you need to come to the net more. Okay. As a coach, you could say that if a player doesn't come in. But before that, they better learn how to volley. 
terribly useful for them to come in more in matches when their volley's no good. So, <laughs> it, you know, the first thing to do if you're going to come in more is get better at the net. You know, then, then you can come in more. So, uh, it would be practice. Uh, and you've got to practice the overhead more. That, that is a shot that, that I see amongst the pros isn't as good as it used to be. It's one mm-hmm. of the few shots. Even even misses overhead. Yeah, even the guy ranked number one in the world has a weak overhead. Weak overhead. Yeah. Like if you if, if the opponent that runs down one of his balls and throws up a high lob, like Murray used to do, one of the few guys used the defensive lob. Right. You know, throw it up high, make make Djokovic bounce it. I mean, he, he, he doesn't put those away very well. Whereas. You know, back in the day, in my day, I, I used to be quite a good defensive lobber. Mm-hmm. And when I would play Stan Smith, I, I would throw up a high defensive lob. You know, and you'd bounce it near the baseline, and it was bye-bye every time. You knocked him off every single time. I hated playing him. Wow. You know? <laughs> Pretty good player. <laughs> the, the good players back in the day, a bouncing overhead was, a, it was bye-bye. Uh-huh. Now they sort of slice it, which is a bad way to hit an overhead. Got to hit them flat. Yeah. Okay. Especially and slice yeah. it. It doesn't. It, 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 it's more difficult to time. It's not a. Anyway, they, they, they the overhead as much as they should. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, uh, of course, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> and when I was in the juniors, uh, I, I, I was not good at going back to Kalamazoo did anything back there uh, so but I was terrified of playing pushers mm. I didn't want to play steady guys uh, you know and they lob you uh, I don't want to play those guys you know uh, but it actually that what what I needed to do I don't know why I didn't is, is I need to hit a lot of overheads yeah. in practice like like most people they go up to the net and they say hit me a few lobs and so they hit a half a dozen overhead. That's it. All right. No. I mean, the way you get a good overhead is you hit a hundred of them. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, hit a hundred. Hit a hundred bouncing ones. Right. You know, hit a lot of them. And you develop a good overhead. Of course, it certainly could do it. I mean, you know, there's no way he wouldn't have a great overhead. But obviously, he doesn't do that. It's- so... You didn't want to play the Bagel Boys. You didn't want to play Harold Solomon and Eddie Gibbs. Gibbs. Those are steady fellas. (laughs) Those guys. You don't. You never want to play those guys. (laughs) Horrible. (laughs) Good good passers, good lovers, yeah. Yeah, top spin off both sides. Actually, I ran into dips late in my career. You did. I I was ready, almost. Uh I was kind of just going over the hill at the time. But it was the last tour I made was like 1968. And I was playing the Caribbean circuit and, and stopped in Miami on the way. I forget to what tournament. There was some kid out there. I was practicing on the clay. Uh, some kid, he was about 16. Uh-huh. And they said, yeah, this kid's pretty good. And so it, it was dibs, by the way. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm playing this little... He was even little. And I'm going, geez, am I bad on clay? Am I in trouble with this? This kid's giving me all I want. Yeah. <laughs> she knows who I am. <laughs> yeah, he was like 16. I think I got him. But it, it was, I think, geez, 
time. <laughs> Love yeah. it. Love it. I didn't, didn't realize how good he was. Yeah, he, he had yeah, a great he turned, I felt better about it five years later when he was top four or five in the, in the world. I, okay. <laughs> so that's why. Although I was going over the hill. <laughs> you already, <laughs> yeah, you're already in your 30s. Hey, um, let's shift from Alan Fox to world tennis and U.S. tennis, if we could. I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on, you can, there are really three, and you can handle these in any order you'd like. Junior tennis in America, especially uh, boys, uh, college tennis and some of the format changes, and the Davis Cup in general. Three topics of which I, I, I don't really, to be honest about really? it, I, I, I could fluff a little, uh-huh. but I, I, I'm really not qualified in any of them to, uh, to have an intelligent opinion. I mean, I don't know our players are not as good as players from Spain yeah. or France or these little countries that have, you know, less courts, less pros, less right. players, and they get better than us. I, I, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, by the way. Is it our our culture? Is it our guys are too fat, happy, and rich and don't have to practice hard? Do we make too many excuses? I mean, what is it? Who knows? I, I, I don't know the answer. I, I appreciate your humility in it, but in a way you answered it with the self-esteem angle from about a half hour ago. Yeah, good for me. Uh, good for you, yeah. I, I do remember a, a guy who was a pretty good, pretty damn good junior development coach. And he said, uh, you know, I can measure how soft a kid is by how often I hear the word self-esteem in the parents' uh, vernacular. So you, you were really, you guys are speaking the same language there. Self-esteem, it, it, it's, it's uh, a kind of a cousin. Uh, of excuse making, mm. it, it's, a, it's just like a second cousin. It's not the same thing, but they they tend to be cor- uh, correlated to each other. Yeah, mm. excuses and weakness. Uh, yeah, and, and people rubbing you up and telling you good uh, you're good when your performance is bad. Uh-huh. No, your performance was bad, but that doesn't mean it'll stay bad. So you had a bad day. You didn't play well. Okay. Boy, you that's know, maybe the too good for you. So practice and, and get better, and you'll beat them in a year. You know, don't you, be in a hurry. You're giving us some stoicism and practical wisdom. That a lot of people do a safe space, Coach. This is tough. Very, very tough. I love it. Yeah, you know, I try to simplify. I mean, a lot of stuff is relatively obvious, mm-hmm. you know, unless you sort of cover it up. You're putting it in wonderful words, and I know our listeners are going to love this and appreciate this when it's produced and out later oh, yeah. this week. Yeah, I can't wait. Did, are we softer than we used to be? I, it doesn't seem like it. We, I mean, we've got all the great facilities. We've got you know all the opportunities that is, – or is it just not our turn in the fishbowl? Everybody gets a turn in the fishbowl. It's not our turn right now. You know, for long, it's it's time for somebody else to have a turn. Is that maybe some? Well, of it? It, it strikes me somewhat. I mean, if I were, this is total guess now, mm-hmm. but on a on a probability basis, we have so many courts and so many 
was in such good weather, so many players. I think eventually that someone's going to pop out. Yeah. You know, we're we're going to have you know some champions just pop out of it. You, you, you know, the coaching aspect of tennis, I think, is is played over the importance of it's exaggerated. Mm. I mean, I think players need the basics. They need to understand. You know, you move the racket mostly with your shoulder rotation and a loose arm, and then the hand. And then once you understand that, that, that you don't need the coach every second to tell you to bend your elbow a little more. Good or point. Just, you know, to hold the racket a little higher. Yeah. The, the, the player is going to figure that out himself. You, don't, you need the basics for a coach, but not you know, sort of micromanagement. I think that's works out to be a negative. So good, good point. Uh, the, the coach I referred to who spoke your language about uh, the, self- he also had a theory that echoes a little bit of what you're saying is a lot of tennis instruction and coaching in the U S is highly structured. And sometimes he would use the word micromanage like you did. Um, yeah. And not enough set play where a kid I, I, figures if a kid plays 12 sets a day or 15 like you, he's yeah. going to figure some stuff out and need a bit less structure and uh, technical coaching. Yeah, and I used to, it, it, you know, towards the end of my career, actually, mm. I, about half the time drilling and half the time set play. Mm-hmm. I think early on, I would play as many sets as I could get. But Love it. Uh, uh, Anyway, yeah, I forgot what you said. Sorry, no, that's that's, no, no. that's. We're about to transition into. Well, I just want I just yeah. want to ask a quick question about playing Davis Cup. Oh, good. What, what were what was it like to play Davis Cup back in the '60s? Man, I, that would have been really a lot of fun. Cause I just kind of theorized in my mind right. about Davis Cup in the early '60s and kind of what, what it might white cardigan sweater. And, yeah, and, tell uh, us about uh, were you home or away? I know you you ripped it was a ripped guys back in the day. Uh huh. Back in the day, it was. You know, equivalent of one of the majors in a way, just from a, a steam standpoint. I'm going to have to admit something here, which I hate to have have to be honest about this. Sorry, but, uh, I was a I was a second echelon player. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, there were better players than me. Country. So I, I played against Iran uh-huh. in in Tehran. Uh, in, in those days, of course, I, you know, I was a very consistent player. Yeah. If the guy wasn't very good, I was going to beat him every time. So, this cup in Iran, mm-hmm. you know, I played two singles matches. I didn't have the slightest thought that I could possibly lose, you know. So, it was all very easy. I was one of those guys, I, 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 <laughs> which I did. You, uh, now, they put me in the challenge round against Australia. It would have been a different story. Yeah. But they did. I was on the team, but I wasn't playing. In two of the years I was on the team, I didn't play. And one year I did. So, so you, you addressed the... Mission. Tell us about being a man of Jewish heritage playing in Iran. Well, I didn't, I didn't tell them. I, was say, hey. I kept that very quiet. <laughs> yeah. Did you really? Yeah. yeah, I might get myself hurt. But, uh, but I don't think, by the way, when I played in Iran in 63, uh-huh. yeah. uh, Iran was not uh, anti-Israel or yeah. anti-America. No, at that time. Uh, at, at that time, 
was one of our allies. Uh-huh. I mean, the Shah was, uh, you know, getting all his weapons and so forth from the United States. So we we were all friends. Then. Yeah, it didn't. So it didn't. I, I could have. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't get anti-Semitic and anti. You know, until uh, the Ayatollahs took over. Right. That's good stuff, Coach. But still, though, representing your country, you know, re- representing yeah. the U.S. and something like that, that still has to, even if you you said that, you know, you're kind of on the JV versus the varsity, that still, you know, would, just a, a highlight of anybody's career to mm. say, hey, you know. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Listen, I like that blazer, mm-hmm. and I like the Davis Cup on the shirt and all yes. that. It was, it was a higher level than I ever would have dreamed of. <laughs> you know, just being on the team, you know, that was that was a big deal for me. Well, it was a big deal for anybody then. Well, so. once again, you don't have been playing seven or eight years. I'm sitting here going, 1954, you said you started playing. So I know you were born in 39. Yeah. So I was pretty good at that in Oklahoma, you know, in math. You know. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. arithmetic. Yeah, and I'm going, golly, how'd you get from... Tucson, Arizona, serving underhanded to playing in Tehran in, in about Davis uh, Cup in the most prestigious in seven or eight years. Never. Fifteen sets a day. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand it either. God must have come down and touched me with something. That's right. How did I get this good when I'm not even a good athlete? Oh, you know? I think so. Incredible. But <laughs> yeah. well, tell us what yeah. what was the Maccabi games because you've won. I mean, who'd you play in the finals? I know you played. You've won. Two gold medals in the Maccabi Games, which is the old Jewish game. Mm-hmm. Who, who'd you play in the finals? Do you recall? Uh, uh, don't John Greg, man. I won three of them. Oh, three. three. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, Jackie Saul from South Africa uh-huh. okay. in the final, uh, and Julian Krinsky in the semis. You know, oh, Julian you know, Krinsky. Krinsky yeah. You know Julian. Oh, he's sure. a big deal in Philly right now. Yeah, yeah. he's doing yeah, great. Yeah, Julian's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, it was Julian in the semis, all in the final. And then I won the doubles with uh, Ron Goldman and the mix with uh, 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 Heldman, Julie Heldman. Julie Heldman, so, right. Yeah. yeah. Legend so, in, uh, I, in tennis. And that's the secret to success, pick a good partner, right? I, I'm the sure they that. say that about you too, so good partner it is. Yeah, the horse no, you I was a bad doubles player, but I got worse. as I, I, I did well in the doubles, actually. Junior doubles, but I had the best junior doubles partner, a guy named Bob Delgado, uh-huh. who was an absolute maestro in doubles. This guy, he, he, he knew where to hit every ball, and he turn or a volley. He, he didn't have a big game, but he never missed. Mm. And he, he, like we played doubles against for one year, and we won every single tournament that we played in. We won the Orange Bowl. We won Kalamazoo. Hmm. We won. And the, he was so good, and I wasn't actually. But I, I could hold serve and I could hit returns hmm. and stuff. But Bob was the daddy. Awesome, uh, Delgado. Oh yeah, Bob, Bob was great. And then I won the NCAA. But again, that was with Larry Nagler, who. He had just come off from winning the singles. Mm-hmm. This is in my junior year. And when Larry was confident, he was a maestro in doubles also. Unbeatable, so huh? I didn't have to do anything. And then gradually I got worse and worse. <laughs> I don't think I want much after that. <laughs> but better and better at singles, better and better yeah. at coaching, writing, broadcasting, and uh, and just being a mentor to a, to a whole bunch of us without even knowing us. 
to uh, the third set here. I know you're used to 15 sets, but we're going to go to our last set here, the third set. This is kind of, we call it fast hands or rapid fire. No need to dig very, very deep in these questions. It's kind of the, the fun pop culture. Craig's about to bring you some fun questions. Yeah, we like, we like to learn a little bit about, uh, we, we talked a lot of tennis in the last yeah. hour and hour or so. We kind of want to know some kind of fun things about you, especially like uh, the first band you saw in concert. Are you a big music guy? Really? Alan, that, that's so funny because this morning on Instagram, I did a promo with California Dreaming, a cover of a Mamas and a Papas track, but it was by artist. So nice. Uh, it was almost scripted. Well done, Alan. I'll, I'll send you 20 bucks in the mail. Okay, great. <laughs> Who right. did you see them at? records or something. That's good. Was that an You're talking to an old, uh, an old guy here, so culture i may be in one of my weaker areas it's okay no this is great this is why we do it man this is the uh the character development set this is fun yeah so where'd you see them at was that in la uh it was outside of la like in in, uh, no not donnie i forget where west covina oh covina i know little Oh, Come you, on. Oh, no way. Right on oh, sunset. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Jim oh, Morrison. I didn't like the doors. Never did. You didn't so, like no. the doors? They, 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 they were, I don't know, I think they were high on dope when they did their shows. <laughs> I think so, too. You know, Morrison was a famous doper. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, I read the Danny Sugarman book about them, and uh, I, Jim, Ray, all those guys, Robbie, they did not play 15 sets a day. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They smoked 15 sets a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did go see them, and it was very loud, and, you know, whatever. It was. I, I started to, like, lose my... I, I'm a country music lover now and guitar uh-huh. guy. Interesting. I, All I, right. I like it. You know, I play guitar myself. And a little known fact, I used to sing. There was a, a duo in, with guitars and we used to go sing at fraternity parties and stuff i bet you oh every yeah i bet you're a big hit that's awesome see this is what we don't get in the normal podcast and on the tennis channel right now i'm interested so was it was the the duet did you have a name of your band or did you just go no no it was just the two of us it was a guy named roger worksman another tennis player oh cool and me and we were fraternity brothers and so of course after practice we would harmonize shower where there was a good echo. Good and acoustics. So, and we practiced. Oh, we did dream. We actually did dream in a uh, in a show in front of I don't know what maybe a thousand people at UCLA. Really, that's a great. Yeah, yeah. We we sang dream. We could do it exactly like the early puppets. Incredible. Hey, now this this is gold, Jerry. This is Jerry. This is gold, baby. <laughs> oh man! So that was, that's that. my next question. If if you're in a band, which member are you? And yeah. you, obviously you're the lead singer. We we say lead no, singer. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm the high harmony. Yeah. High I'm harmony high. and guitar. Yeah, yeah, I did the harmony. So yeah, yeah. What did your buddy play? I what? could sing lead, but I, I sort of like the harmony. I don't know why. On the low side, but you you'd go falsetto. You'd go up a few. Uh, I forget which one of the Ebony Brothers was doing the yeah. high harmony. 
could do thirds. I mean, I, I, I could do, you know, sort of a close harmony to pretty much anything. I could hear it. Mm. Uh, it's been so many years since I've done it, I've lost my ear, but... Who, who uh, would have I'm working on finger picking. So you're playing a little country. Who's your favorite country artist right now? Who, who are you playing? I like, well, I don't play him, but I like some of Travis Tripp's stuff. Tripp, Travis yeah. Tripp, yeah. Uh, what else? Willie? You know, I, 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 I love, uh, I forgot. <laughs> Will, Willie Nelson? Are you Willie George Strait? No, you know, old I, country? I don't like, I used to like Willie Nelson. Like, I'm uh -huh. sick of uh, I, I used to like Willie Nelson in the 70s. Uh, and, then, and then I got sick of them, and, and I'm still sick of them. But mm -hmm. <laughs> Dan Seals is great. Sure. You know, some of the old stuff. Uh, right. Merle Haggard. I hate to date myself like that. No, no, no. You're right in our wheelhouse. We, we love yeah, this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, they... yeah. yeah. I, I started, music started to go You know, when they got to, like, uh, heavy metal and hard mm -hmm. rock and stuff. Mm. Uh, like my team guys, when I, when we would go in the van, my team guys would turn on this heavy metal stuff. ACDC? And I would eventually, after, yeah. you know, a decent amount, I would switch the radio off and say, now doesn't that sound great? <laughs> oh, isn't that a pleasure? The silence. Turn that off! Yeah. <laughs> In the van. Yeah, that racket is finally over. <laughs> I thank God. It's mind grading. Uh, and, and so I, I guess popular music sort of ran away from me. It's coming back just... Uh, it's not quite as... But, you know, I, I, I like whatever. Uh, guitars good. and finger-picking and that sort of stuff. I do like... like uh, uh, Jerry I'm Reed. Tired. You know, like huh? Jerry Reed. You know, I, I love Jerry, Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed was a great one. Oh, oh my yeah. God, one of the best. Chet Atkins. Mm. Chet Atkins too. Yes, Jerry Reed. Chet, Chet Atkins, Atkins was, a, was a maestro as well. Yes, I. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I like bluegrass. Is the other. That's some great yeah. stuff. Yeah. Favorite movie? What's your favorite movie? Tell us your favorite movie. What do you watch? North by Northwest. If I had to pick that or Casablanca. Would oh, be interesting. My two favorites at the time. No, no, I shouldn't say that. Actually, one ah, and two. One and two. Marlon. Right? That would that would be the list. If you want uh, yeah. comedies, it would be Some Like It Hot. Mm -hmm. What else is good? Blazing <laughs> um, Saddle. Oh uh, yes. Mel Brooks. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah, funny. Blazing. Some of his stuff was. Pretty funny. Oh, yeah, just, that guy was hilarious. I, I've got a stat here for you. 68% of our shows, and this is episode 41, somebody has mentioned either Blazing Saddles or The Godfather. Yes, yes, we have. The best. Not 67%, but 68%. No, 68%. Uh, Mel, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Uh, no. In general, yeah. He's funny. Yeah, yeah. Brooks. When he, when he was good, I mean, he was kind of yeah. But when he was good, he hit just the right tone. Oh, he did. Uh, yes. Yeah. I hey. mean, Annie Hall was great. Woody Annie Allen Hall, Woody, and uh, Diane Keaton. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're Jewish. You would, uh, it, you, Woody has this, you understand what he's getting at really quickly. Yeah, that, the, the, the nebbish uh, sort of way of talking. I grew up in New York, and as a tennis guy, I loved the couple of scenes down by the... the uh, the seaport and the bubble. 
e- even though I'm not Jewish, I, I feel like I, that, that movie's a big part of me. Yeah, yeah, um, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, the, the thing where, where if you're Jewish, you would like, uh, identify is, is the dinner scene where he, he himself as like the Hasidic Jew uh-huh. at, the, at the table with, with a bunch of non-Jews, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and he, he, he feels like they're all looking at him and he's got that, that uh, dark get-up on with the long side. <laughs> The, with the hat, yeah, the get-up, yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it 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 did feel like that at one time. Mm-hmm. I, I I felt that way myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coach. Here's a big one right here. Yes. All right. Uh, you people at at dinner. Who are you inviting? Yeah. Who are you inviting? Who? Four people. Four people or more. It can be. It's it's your party. At least four. Minimal four, and it can be well, anybody. I could, I could come up with four, but I, of course I wouldn't speak the same language as some of them. I, I, who I would just love to talk to, uh-huh. if I could, would be Alexander the Great. Wow, oh, interesting. We don't Julius, have him. Julius Caesar. Caesar. Okay. Napoleon. Uh, and Winston Churchill. And you would uh, speak Greek, Latin, French, and English at the table uh, seamlessly. Be tricky. Uh, That'd be incredible. They were, they were the geniuses. I mean, the first three yeah. were beyond anything. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't put them in the category of those other three because the other three could win every battle pretty much and run a country very, very well. You just brought it back to tennis, didn't you, with the win? <laughs> my man well it, 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 I, I'm a military history buff yes. so I, I, I like that stuff uh, there is a, a certain similarity uh, uh, in, in military strategy and tennis strategy yes. there's some yes you have to be mentally they were great leaders they were all great leaders and they they knew what they wanted and they seemed like that they were winner take all mm. it was it was not you yeah. there's no second best on that those guys they were except not yeah, Churchill was, was different they right? couldn't afford I right. mean if Alexander or any of them had been second best in a couple of battles to be dead done you know they, they couldn't yeah. afford to lose so they didn't but Alexander never lost mm. and Caesar didn't either uh, Napoleon was a couple Right. He had Waterloo. Waterloo, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he was he was uh, fighting with uh, inferior troops at that point. That's uh-huh. correct. He just sort of cobbled together an army, but he was in trouble from the beginning. Right. And he edged by that also. As, yeah. a, as a military leader, he'd gotten a little uh, sort of physically weak. He mm. had probably had stomach cancer at that time, uh, which, he, he, you know, in his early days... He was, and, and he would ascertain all the important details himself personally on his horse. Uh, but at the end, he started to rely on other people, which, yeah, that doesn't of course, really, often yeah. doesn't do well yeah, yeah. as well. You can see what's going on as opposed to what you hear and what's going on. It's, mm. that's, a, that's a totally yeah, different. Yeah, he missed, a, he, he missed a thing or two, yeah. and, and he allowed two armies to coalesce against him at the end. And, and, and he, he needed to fight them. He, he, he thought one of the armies was farther away than it was. And, and they, they coalesced at the end, and that was too much for him. East Coast, anyway, East Coast huh? or West Coast? East Coast, West Coast. I have an idea what you're going to say, but... Are you, 
Mister. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm a West Coaster. I, I don't love what's going on in California too yeah. much, but I do love the weather. So uh, until they get somewhere else, I'm a California guy. <laughs> the East Coast, I'm, I'm not up for snow and cold yeah. and what have you. Mountains or Mark. beach? What about mountains or beach? Are you a mountain guy or a beach guy? Um, probably guy. I live in San Luis Obispo now, yep, sure. and so that's kind of neither. It's got little hills and uh, isolated and kind of nice. So mountain. I'm, I'm happy here. I wouldn't like Malibu, Malibu actually. Oh, interesting. Really? Did you live there in Malibu when you were coaching at Pepperdine? I lived in Calabasas, uh-huh. okay. sort of inland from sure. Malibu. But that, that, Malibu is, is a neat place if you don't have to go anywhere, yeah. it, you know, the Malibu itself is is uh, small and it doesn't have much in the way of it's got one movie theater and a few restaurants. So you, you have to leave Malibu. But if you do in the summer, you can't get away. The traffic is in, so you're sort of trapped there. On your so, commute from Calabasas down to Malibu, did you take those canyon roads? Yeah, yeah. We lived in the canyon at the time. What a blast! A, a place called Montanito, yeah. which is sort of in the middle of the canyon. Uh, I could make it to Pepperdine in seven or eight minutes. And if you went up the hill a little bit, uh, obviously a blast driving that, but a lot of fresh fruit stands and all that. I always love that, that Calabasas to Malibu kind of area. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Malibu Yeah, of of all of them, yeah. It's pretty, and there's Malibu Creek State Park in there where you go for walks. It's beautiful. So it's it's, it's a great area, but... Uh, we're, we're, we're quite happy here. Good Sunrise, sunrise guy. Your morning guy or an evening guy? Morning guy. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Sunrise. Okay. Morning guy. Yeah, yeah. More morning, uh, less evening. Favorite season? So, do you like uh, uh, summer, spring, winter, fall? What do you? What, or what? What's your favorite season? Here. Winter. Winter in yeah. California, but not ah, here. Not winter. Not, here. Yeah. not winter in Colorado when it's uh, eight feet of snow on the ground. Yeah, I'm not in for the winners in Colorado. <laughs> By the way, do uh, you know Richie's tennis school there in in, in Boulder? I don't think he so. Was, oh, okay. Who, who, uh, who is it? I'm mean, trying to think. Uh, Richie, did you say? Yeah, it's a, it's a gentleman named Richie Berman. Started mm-hmm. a tennis school there in, oh. in, in Boulder. I have to uh-huh. look him up. Uh, I knew Richie from California. Oh, I used to, okay. his dad used to pay me 10 bucks an hour to play with him when he was a kid. Oh, wow. And, but he, he started this tennis school. It's, it's a funny, it's a slightly funny story. Tell it. Tell but, it, please. Okay, well, it's, uh, I don't know how funny. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Richie was about 12 or 13 when I used to play him. I used to torture him. It was fun. Uh, but I had certain strategies <laughs> that I understood, which was basically hit every backhand cross court try to drive the cross court with your backhand and only hit down the line when you get a short one or, or the other guy goes down the line. You, you want your opponent to try to hit down the line mm. when he shouldn't. Then you have an open court and you can hurt. Uh, and so uh, I have a doctor here in San Luis Obispo who played college tennis at a lower level. And this is maybe seven or eight or nine years ago and I could still play a bit. We used to play, mm-hmm. and I'd play him, and, 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 and I would 
pictures on him. And he would do the same thing back to me. Mm-hmm. He did every backhand cross court. And he'd never open up his court and go down the line and give me an opening. So he would sort of grind me down. And I find out eventually from Boulder, Colorado. He learned from the guy you taught. <laughs> he learned from Richie. He learned I love it. from Richie's tennis school. Yeah, and I was thinking, no wonder the guy does everything. <laughs> He's using my own strategies against me. Little did you know, they came back to haunt you. <laughs> yeah, it came back to haunt me. I was, it was a small coincidence. That's a pretty cool. That's, like, a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty interesting one. What's your favorite holiday, Coach? What's your favorite holiday? Uh, Christmas. Christmas. Ah. Christmas. I love Christmas. Okay. I, I love the music, yeah. and we celebrate it. It's a wonderful holiday. And I hate to admit that. Being, uh, I, should, I don't really hate to admit no. that being Jewish. Yeah, you, uh, could, you could say you know, Hanukkah and Christmas. You could do them both. Christmas. Yeah, my, my kids went to Catholic school. They did, so, huh? Uh, yeah, and, and I'm... I'm uh, Jewish as I am, I really, I, I like the Christian religion a lot. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I like the teach uh, Catholic school that the boys went to. I mean, hopefully they, well, they didn't have any priests that did anything to them. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. But, which is, that's an unfortunate thing. I hate it when, when they attack religion based on guys do it. Religions itself are basically good for society. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, at least <laughs> anyway yeah uh, that, that could be a touchy topic if we get into that one i think we we, we might be smart to stay. it's actually one of our specialties but we'll uh, we'll do that we'll, part we'll, two we'll acquiesce yeah. 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 on your yeah, return appearance after when we get done with religion we can go to politics <laughs> oh i can't oh, wait baby <laughs> if we can't if we can't aggravate anybody with the religion talk we can yeah. Let's let's see if we can polarize the country more, huh? Yeah, yeah, get them all angry at us. <laughs> especially in these, uh, especially uh, in these very sensitive times in an election year with a global yeah, okay. pandemic. Let's do it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> this is, this is bringing it back to tennis and war. This is embracing that stuff, you know, okay. emotional control. Coach, all right, well, we'll control as a. a uh, I I think we may be coming to a. Uh, we are, well, we we're, are. We're coming we're, down. Craig's we got, got the last two here. I, I, I'm weakening. I'm yeah. weakening. Don't okay. ask me anything where I have to think. Okay. Not last I'm, last I'm, couple I'm of questions. I'm running out of horsepower. No, no. That's okay. Funny. All right. Uh, what do you like to do in your spare time? Tell me just real quick. What do you, you said you like to read military history. It sounds yeah. like. Uh, I read military history. I, I watch shows on, on uh, Netflix. I play tennis with my wife. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we play almost every day. I'm playing left. My right shoulder's all worn out. Mm. So I'm learning to play lefty. And I fool around with my guitar a bit. Not very good, but I like to fool around with it. We're going to have to hear, hear you on a, on a return engagement. We want we want you back on a second time and play, play us a number or two. <laughs> I can play freight train with the alternating bass with my thumb. I'm learning to do it. That and a couple more where I can finger pick. You're the best, yeah. man. You're still getting better at things. You've uh, advanced age 80. over 70s. Incredible. <laughs> no, it's 80. 80 even. Even better. County. Yeah, right. Last two questions. Yes. If you wouldn't have been involved in sports, what would you be doing right now, Coach? If you weren't involved in the great game, what would you be doing? 
I'd be doing about what I'm doing, actually. Yeah. I, I'm not, uh, the only involvement I really have in tennis right now is I do some speaking and some uh, consulting with juniors, mm. which I enjoy. Uh, you know, I spend most of my time doing just what I said. Just, just what I would, if I didn't have any tennis, that would take, a, I don't know, five hours away from my week, which mm -hmm. wouldn't make much difference. Not much. Yeah, I, I, I do what I'm doing. Just trying to have fun and enjoying spending time with my wife, who I dearly love. Uh, we could have a, 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 a session someday on relationships, oh, which, which I'm quite knowledgeable in now. The whole country needs yes. marriage counseling. Yes. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful field. Yeah. We'll come back. We're going to book you for a second return engagement. But the last question before we go, before, we want to make, we always ask, this is our, our creme de la creme, the, the, the cherry on the eye. If, yeah. you, if uh -oh. you, if you were the commissioner of the great game and you could wave the magic wand, what change or changes would you make to the great game? If any, do you like it the way it is? Or is there anything that sticks out that you say, well, gosh, I'd like would change? Probably, and, and of course, uh, Chuck Creasy isn't going to want to hear this, <laughs> but I, I would go to two out of three sets. I, uh, three out of five is a bit long uh, uh, in general. Mm. I mean, there's some great three out of five set matches. Too many of them are, are too long, and it takes too long to get to the nub of it. So I, I, would, I would shorten it. Uh, I wouldn't change. I like the tiebreaker system, uh, college tennis. You know, I might, uh, uh, I actually, my foreign, the foreign players I had on my team at Pepperdine, I love them. They're the most wonderful people, like Florida from Canada mm -hmm. and so forth. But uh, uh, if, if America were a little smarter, we, we would re uh, restrict the scholarships so that more Americans would uh, have a chance to get a free education and play college tennis. So I would probably institute that. Uh, those would be the changes. Uh, coaching, I, I say change this or that. So I keep my mouth shut. No, that's a, that's that's a fabulous answer. No, we, we're we're happy to have you on as our our guest on Athenet Podcast. You've been uh, hopefully you uh, have enjoyed your time, and we'd love to have you come back. Chips with us, you know, when you have a moment. I'd like to do it. You, you, you'd be surprised that it would be useful. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it. Now, somebody that's uh, been married uh, for as long as you have to your yeah. lovely wife and, and still married. And still, you said you love and You obviously care about uh, people and relationships. And, and I just wish that I would have been good enough to play the Pepperdine University. You never would have known me from Oklahoma. <laughs> I, I did well, not. You could, you could have been like Laura. Though. Marty. Yeah. <laughs> to give you a scholarship. Come oh. on. Coach, you know, <laughs> Pepperdine's a tough school. I'm from Oklahoma. Come on, you know. Yeah, yeah Pepperdine didn't. It didn't. It had fairly uh, low uh, standards for admission back in the day, too. It's gotten tougher now. That has changed exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Anyway, you are such a mensch. You're you. a wealth of knowledge and also wisdom. And huge thanks wow. for tonight. You're the yeah, best. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. We we spent too much of your time. We'll 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 get with you and uh, have you back sometime soon. How's that? I love okay. it. You guys are two sharp guys. I have to say, <laughs> you just you're a lot seen. quicker than I am. So. Are you kidding? <laughs> just look look on Facebook Live, and you'll go. Your your opinion is going to change really fast. <laughs> <laughs> you're quicker than I am. I mean, I've got more years of learning stuff. 
the only edge I have. You guys are two sharpies. Man, so, you're something special. Thank Big you, thanks, sir. Alan. Thank you. Have a great right. night right. and uh, enjoy the sunset out there and have a great week, pal. Yep. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank Take you. care. Have a great night. Thank you, Doc. And CB1. Time for the dismount. A, we had a fun show. Oh I do want to mention um, my hat was, it's got a little orange in honor of Alan's time at Pepperdine. I want to just draw a little bit of attention to did Saturday, yesterday. Uh, we actually taped it on Friday. It's about Team Luke, uh, Hope for Minds, which is a, a, a cause we're very passionate about. And uh, Craig has been friends with Tim Siegel a while. I got to enjoy the Tim this past Wednesday. It was a very special effort. It is not too late to go on to their website. And um, donate. Donate. Heck, do a 30-ball wall thing. It may be too late to get in on the uh, drawing to hit with Johnny Isner. Isner. But uh, never, absolutely never too late to support a remarkable cause like this, which is uh, the story of a child who had a brain injury and his journey and his recovery from that uh, I left the book over there. Book uh, Tim wrote with a forward by Drew Brees and a lot of support from people like Patrick Mahomes, Andre Agassi, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. And the, the title of the book is It's in God's Hands. So pick up a finished it yet. I only just started a couple days ago and I'm almost done. And I'm going to flip it to CV. And then maybe we, you want to do one, one of these days, we'll do a watch our social media. We'll do a little contest for a t shirt, a, um, a book. And a book. We've got an extra book, which I'm oh, sporting yeah. right now. Yeah, we've got it right here. Yeah. There we go. Team Luke right yeah. there. We're with you, Luke. Thank you, buddy. We're with you, man. Thank you. And, uh, and here's Craig Bell with our dismount tonight. Thanks for listening to season one, episode 41 with the great Dr. Alan Fox. What a great, wasn't it, AJ? Gold, baby. Uh, be sure to tell your friend or friends as we hope your peeps like us. And that's the tennis news as it, it seems, seems to us. us. Good night, everybody from the bunker in Dallas, Texas. Good night.